0: Please go ahead and find Mark chapter 1 before we get comfortable this morning. Let's turn our undivided attention to the precious words that will be exposited this morning. Mark chapter 1, and I want to read verses 1 through 8. The Gospel of Mark, verses chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god as it is written in isaiah the prophet behold i send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way the voice of the one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the lord make his path straight john the baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not it to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The title of the message today is The Greatest Man Ever Born, Part 2. Last week, I preached The Greatest Man Ever Born, Part 1, and to review, we saw how. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, set the stage for the rest of the gospel account. Chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 16 is all about the euangelion of Jesus, the good news, the gospel. What we see in chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, is where the gospel story begins. It begins before Jesus even arrives on the scene. It begins with a rustic man named John the Baptizer, also known as the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus himself called John the Baptist the greatest man born of woman. Because after 400 years of deafening silence, commonly referred to as the intertestamental period, where there was no true prophet speaking for Yahweh, he served as the last Old Testament prophet and bore direct witness to the Christ in the day of Christ. That's why he is the greatest. He was the shining testimony that pointed people to the long-awaited promised Savior for those he came to save. He was the greatest, therefore. And so as the Spirit of God would have it, this is where the Gospel of Mark begins. It starts with the prophetic prophetic voice of john the baptist in the wilderness preparing the way for the coming of the lord the gospel of mark does not begin with the birth of christ as matthew and luke does and it does not begin with christ in eternity past as the gospel of john does rather mark alone begins with a preacher known by the world as john the baptist And as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, if you weren't here last Lord's Day, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message because I talked about the theme and the author and the purpose and the audience of of Mark. And so I think that's foundational as we begin this several-month-long series in Mark. Today we are going to unpack verses 5 to 8 and consider the three remaining aspects of John's life. The first two was John's calling and ministry, which we considered last week. This morning we're going to consider John's impact, John's consecration, and John's humility. And again, the proposition is the same as last week. By learning these aspects of John the baptizer's life, we can gain a good example for us to follow today. We all need good examples, don't we? Little children follow examples. And guess what? The Bible calls you a little child. We're still little children spiritually, and we need examples. And so I think John the baptizer is a prime example for all of us. There is a a feast of spiritual food to be harvested here as we learn the implications of John's calling, ministry, impact, consecration, and humility. Due to John's powerful preaching ministry, he began to draw a crowd, a large crowd. And that leads us to the third aspect of his life, That's John's impact in verse 5. John's impact is in verse 5. And I want you to please note, as we consider this aspect, what the effect of true, biblical, passionate preaching is. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem... That is to say, to summarize, that large numbers of people were coming from all over the map to a remote area to hear an open-air sermon. They were drawn by his bold conviction and fearless proclamation of the gospel because no doubt they were weary of a dead ritualism. And they were curious to hear what this eccentric open-air preacher had to say. Notice the key word here, all. It's repeated twice. All of Judea and Jerusalem came. Now, this doesn't mean that every single person or inhabitant of that region abandoned their homes and went out to the wilderness. But it does clearly indicate that a sizable group had flocked out into the wild to hear some good old Baptist preaching. Amen, Baptists? And so, this vast, continual stream of men and women were coming from the territory of Judea, which, listen, is the southernmost division of first century Israel, with Samaria and Galilee to the north. It included the city of Jerusalem, in other words, the city of David, and extended from the Mediterranean Sea to the west, to the Jordan River in the east, and from Bethel in the north and to Beersheba in the south. You guys got that? That's okay. I don't expect you to. But the point of me telling you those geographical statements or facts is because it shows you precisely the magnitude of John's impact. It was huge because it attracted people from a widespread distance from miles and miles away. It would be like saying Aaron Stogner appeared in the wilderness of the Snoqualmie Valley. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All of the country of King County was going out to him and all the people of Seattle. And they were being baptized by him in the icy Tolt River. Now. If people from all over King County came to hear Pastor Stogner's preaching, you'd say, wow, look at the impact he's having. Right? John's impact was just like that. People from miles and miles and miles away were coming to be baptized in a muddy river and hear the preaching of a strange, hairy Baptist preacher. So John's impact was not merely numerical though, okay? And thank God that we have this because or else we'd be tempted to think that large crowds are indicative of the faithfulness and accuracy of a man's preaching. But guess what? It's not. The greater impact he had was spiritual. It goes on to say, Mark says, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Again, they were being dipped, submerged, not sprinkled, under the water. And here in verse 5, we see an additional responsibility of the sinner and the natural response to the regenerative, regenerative work of the Spirit, which we'll get to in a second. By the way, that's why I chose that wonderful hymn, And Can It Be This Morning? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and the dungeon became flame with light. Amen. That is a doctrinal statement that all of us were bound, dumb, dead, and blind, but suddenly your eye diffused a quickening ray, you were able to see that is God's sovereign grace in the work of a dead sinner. And so Mark, the evangelist, says that all these people were coming to be dunked, but they were confessing their sins. Friends, that's why we're credo-baptists. Baptism involves the confessing of sin. And a baby and even a child. cannot understand the significance of this. But you're about to. Confessing sins. It comes from the Greek compound verb homo, the same. legeo to say. So it means to say the same as. Confession to God involves concurring with God in his verdict. So when you confess your sin to God, which I hope you have, and you do it ongoingly, What you're doing is this. You're saying the same thing God says about your sin, and you are assenting to its just penalty. You're saying that my sin is lawless, evil, and wrong, and because of that, I acknowledge that I deserve to be punished. That's what the Jews were getting. That's what they were doing. They were getting dunked they were saying the same thing that God says about their sin. They agreed with God that they had broken his law and needed to be forgiven and saved from death. Now, do you understand what that means for you, my fellow sojourners? We all know the famous verse written by John, the Apostle of Love, right? If we homo Confess our sin, same word that Mark used in chapter 1, verse 5. If we say the same thing God says about our sin, then He is faithful and just to forgive us. It's a condition. If, then. So when you confess your sin in prayer, for it to be godly and genuine, it must be more than, God, I made a mistake. I messed up. I really did it this time. That's not it. It must involve an agreement with God that the sin you commit is rebellion, lawlessness, and criminal. Like a loving father who disciples his children. Our heavenly father expects us to obey, to live right, to love what is good, and to hate what is evil. And when we fail... There is forgiveness. But that forgiveness is conditional upon your willingness to say the same thing God says about your sin. Now that was the spiritual impact of John's preaching. And I pray that's the kind of preaching, that's the kind of impact the preaching you listen to has on you. Whether it's here, the preaching you hear from this pulpit, or the preaching you listen to on your podcasts, or whatever else. The elders of this church pray every Sunday in my office that through our preaching you will deny yourself more and more and not look to yourself or man-made philosophy. I pray that through our preaching you may repent more and more and not harden your heart to the plain explanation of Scripture. I pray that through our preaching, you will learn to confess, say the same thing about that God says about your sin more and more, and not develop a seared conscience and pattern of minimizing your sin. Brothers and sisters, that's going to be a daily battle. Because... Monday through Saturday, you're being told the opposite. Right? It's not a big deal. That's not how I see it. I don't believe that. That's your opinion. We're ending with that Monday through Saturday. And so I must remind you, because I love you, that there is a need for regular, ongoing confession. As part of your daily walk with Christ, as we seek to become sanctified, We know our church is having the right impact when we see interest, right? We want our church to grow numerically. I want people to show up. (laughs) I want us to get big enough to where we can really do more ministry and spend more time together on those things. But more importantly, I promise to you that the spiritual impact far supersedes any number. As long as our church, no matter how big or small it is, is showing evidence of continual and maybe even increasing confession of sin, I think we're on the right track. Amen? The fourth aspect of John's life that we learn from from him is in verse 6. John's consecration. John's consecration. Verse 6 is all about John the Baptist's commitment to personal holiness. It says in verse 6 that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and honey. Wild honey. John wore a hairy garment made of camel's hair, girded around his waist by a rough leather belt. And this would have designated him as a prophet. In other words, his clothing set him apart as a messenger of God. Whom had to be a reflection of the self-denial that was central to the message of repentance. Repentance. The verb tense of clothed revealed that he was always dressed this way. He was always dressed in camel's hair and leather, not merely when he was preaching, which indicates that John's ministry was not a nine-to-five job. He did not see himself as a farmer, for instance, one minute, and then a preacher the next. His ministry of preaching and role as prophet and forerunner was an all-consuming responsibility. In other words, he, he never took his uniform off. Because every day was game day. And I think those who are uniquely called of God to a preaching and teaching public ministry can resonate with that. Because those who are called... And there, there is in Scripture to be found the role of a preaching or teaching elder... 1 Timothy 5, right? Elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the work of teaching. There's a distinction there. And so those men whom God calls to have a unique preaching public ministry can resonate with the fact that our ministry is not a nine-to-five job. Day in and day out, I'm consumed with the next message. When I go into Starbucks, which is usually Monday through Friday in the morning to get coffee, I'm consumed with people that I haven't seen in a long time. I'm consumed with the possibility of running to somebody who left our church probably. And I'm consumed with the hope that I may get an opportunity to evangelize. Or invite someone to church. Now, honestly, it's okay. How many of you feel the exact same way? It's not a trick question. Very few, right? But the one set aside, set apart, consecrated to preach the word is unique. So in a similar way, that's, that's how John viewed himself. He didn't take off his camel's hair and leather and put on his tunic and go back to his sh- literal sheep. This is his livelihood. This is what he did day in and day out. But not only did his strange apparel provide a visible and perpetual reminder of his consecration, so did his nutrition. Verse 5 goes on to say that John's diet included locusts which, under the Mosaic Law, was permitted for Israelites to eat, according to Leviticus 11.22. These locusts provided a good source of protein and could be prepared in a variety of ways. Once the wings and legs were removed, the body could be roasted, broiled, boiled, seared, dried, and listen to this, even ground up for bread. Does this sound delicious? No, we shouldn't serve locust bread on Sunday mornings. Now this simple diet also sent a message. It wasn't just because John liked it. It wasn't because it was a preference. I'm sure there were plenty of days where he wished he could have had a steak or something, right? But Mark recorded this tidbit of information because it sent a message. It spoke to John's simplicity, the simplicity of his message. The main thrust of his preaching was simple and basic because it was singular. And so he had a singular diet. He only ate locusts and honey, and he only preached a baptism of repentance. But apparently, John was allowed to have a little pleasure in life through the tasty consumption of a gooey dessert. Wild honey. It was available for John to eat, which provided a sweet counterpart to the locusts. More could be said about that, but I won't bore you. But the point is this. John's simple diet was in keeping with his status as a lifelong Nazarite. You guys ever heard of that before? You guys know what a Nazarite is? Anybody? Well, the word Nazirite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means to be consecrated. So a man or woman who desired to dedicate themselves to God completely could take a Nazirite vow. This special vow had five features, one of which had a specific dietary requirement. One of which meant you can't drink strong drink. And it included some things you couldn't eat. And so John's diet was a reflection of his commitment to the vow of holiness. That was center in his ministry. Now, here's what we can learn from that aspect of John's life. The pleasures and pursuits of this world can be stumbling blocks that keep people from rejecting their sin and turning to God. Let me read that one more time. Here's what we learn from John's consecration. The pleasures and pursuits of this world can be stumbling blocks to people from rejecting their sin and turning to God. Now let me elaborate. Not only was John obviously not concerned with the cultural, refined, sophisticated appearance of the Sadducees and Pharisees, his way of life in and of themselves, in and of itself, was a rebuke to those who indulged in pomp and circumstance of their privileged positions. So it confronted the religious elite. By claiming to be a prophet and not wearing those fancy garbs, it sent a message of rebuke. But it also confronted the common people too. It confronted those who admired the worldly advantage, advantages of their well-to-do leaders. Now as a former Catholic, I get this. I remember standing before a Roman Catholic priest at a quote-unquote altar and being mesmerized by the intricacy of his vestments and robe. It was astonishing. And though John did not call people to dress like himself, or eat like he ate, praise the Lord, it did serve as a dramatic reminder that the things of this world, though sometimes not inherently sinful, they played no part in gospel ministry. Now again, those of you who know me well know that I'm a student of the Reformation, right? I am a student of the Reformation. And one of the reasons why is because not only did the movement or a study of the movement explain our spiritual heritage, learning about the Reformation also explains why we do some of the things we do. For instance, have you ever thought about why... In the Protestant culture, particularly Baptist or non denominational, have you ever wondered why the elders do not wear intricate robes and fancy stoles? Isn't you know what a stole is? It's that strip of fabric that goes over the shoulders, and it's purple and shiny and has golden things sewn into it. Why don't we do that? Why do I just wear a simple jacket and a white shirt every Sunday? Why do a lot of non, non-denominational preachers wear jeans and a shirt or a t-shirt? You guys ever wondered that? Am I the only weird guy that might have thought, why don't why why don't we wear those things? Well, again, by studying the Reformation, it informs you of that, but it also helps you understand the significance of, Of what it was and why we don't do it. When the reformers studied scripture and it was laid to bear on their minds for the first time. Remember, these reformers, they were doctors. These are men who had been quote unquote ordained clergymen for years. And they're just now getting to study the scripture. So when it came to bear on their minds, they grew to reject a lot of things. But one of the things they grew to despise, especially, was the extreme unbiblical separation between clergy and the laity. Between the ordained ministers and the common church people. They saw that that was wrong. And it built an unbiblical chasm. And the church of Jesus Christ suffered and paid for it. So men like Luther, and men like Calvin, and men like Zwingli, they said, no more robes. The fancy wardrobe had to go. Because it signified, as it does to this day, that the clergy was so special and so uniquely above the common believers spiritually, that it required the donning of very elaborate ornate robes with complex symbols. Now, maybe asking Heitman, what does this have to do with John the Baptist? Okay, Great question. It illustrates how much we need, you and me, need to learn the same lesson. That John the Baptist is giving us. We're learning that because we are called set apart. We are a chosen priesthood. Amen? We have been set apart. Not just the priest. To do ministry. To teach. To serve the Lord and to be ambassadors. just like the church in the medieval age reverted back to what John was teaching or implying, don't be foolish to think that we cannot revert back to synchronizing worldly attraction with biblical doctrine. Just as much as the flashy and worldly robes had absolutely no place in the church in the 16th century, Visual representations that are unholy and unbiblical must not be a part of our ministry. And that does not simply apply to the way we dress or the way the elders dress. It has to do with anything that's worldly. That's why SVBC, as long as I'm the pastor we'll never stoop down to thinking that programs and carnivals will produce genuine long-term growth. That's what we must stick to what the Bible explicitly says we should be doing and not concern ourselves with the same things as the world does. Amen. So you see what we learned from John's consecration? You See how much we can get out of that verse that some of us have read, but just kind of glossed over. Verse 6 teaches us that worldly attraction, worldly beauty, and worldly items, worldly dress, has nothing to do with genuine biblical gospel ministry. I hope I'm being clear. That's the takeaway we get from John's consecration. The fifth and final aspect. Of John's life that we can learn from is his humility. If you think these the previous two aspects were somewhat shocking, this is going to blow your mind. At the end of this at the end of this series, we fittingly end with this aspect of John's life, because it's this aspect of John's life that we see his heart. We see John's heart being manifested here. And we know that Yahweh looks at the heart, right? So let's 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 peer into John the Baptist's heart here. In verse seven. And he was preaching and saying, Now pause for a minute. What follows in the next in this verse, seven and eight, is the reader's digest version of John's ministry. He didn't just stand knee deep in the river like a broken record, repeating himself over and over again. Mark here wrote down the main gist. Or the condensed version, compressed version of his preaching. Which again was, as the forerunner of Christ, to point sinners to the one who could save them from the penalty of their sin. After one coming. Who is it mightier than I? This speaks to the imminence of Christ's coming. The certainty of it. And it speaks to John's recognition that Christ is superior. Infinitely greater. Because he is the object of the message. Here's where we see John's ultimate humility. Are you ready? I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now, listen, it's time for you to be a good exegete. And remember to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Roman. Because for us, if I came to your house and I said, "Oof, my back's really hurting me today. Would you untie my shoe for me? You might think to yourself, that's a little weird, and, and it might make it a little bit uncomfortable. But I know all of you guys would do it, right? And you wouldn't be offended. If you, if you would be, let me, let me have a chat with you afterwards. But you get the point, though. Tie, untying somebody's shoe isn't that really far-fetched, right? We do it all the time. My, my, my son's almost 10, and sometimes I soak him with his shoes when he doesn't need it. I just do it because I want to help them, because I love them. But in Jesus' day, to stoop down and untie the thong of anyone's sandals was, listen, the lowest and most menial task performed by a slave. So get this. John was saying that he was unworthy. Remember, he's a true prophet of God. John was saying he was unworthy to even do the most menial task for his master, capital M. He viewed himself as less than a slave before Christ. But does that blow your mind? Doesn't that not bring deep conviction upon your hearts? It does for me, brothers and sisters. It does for me immensely. When I'm serving the Lord, I don't always feel this way. I don't always feel unworthy. On the contrary, there are many days where I feel worthy. But that's wrong. We all need to feel like John. When we serve the Lord, we all need to view ourselves as unworthy slaves, unfit to function in ministry at all. And I'll confess something to you. I often get discouraged by a lot of things but what serves as a constant reminder to me and helps me to drive on is one statement I heard made by a man whom I have deep respect for. I want you to listen. He told this to a group of men, one of which was me. I tell pastors all the time the best way to approach ministry from the start Is from the fact that you deserve absolutely nothing, and whatever you get is a mercy. And when we first heard that, that wasn't easy to hear. Don't I deserve a big church? Don't I deserve to have a church that obeys? Don't I deserve to have a church that serves? Don't I deserve to have a church that's faithful? Don't I deserve to have a church that shows up on time? Don't I have a church that's going to love on me just because? The answer is no. I deserve none of that. And that's biblical and true. Because that's how even the Apostle Paul viewed himself. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, isn't this so countercultural? Not only does the culture train wannabe pastors, but they deserve so much out of their ministry. But I'm sorry to say that the culture trains you to think similarly. The culture trains you to say I deserve that position. The culture trains you to say I deserve that recognition. I deserve that promotion, I deserve that reward, I deserve this this or that you fill in the blank. And sometimes church going Christians, brothers and sisters, do you deserve Do you feel like you deserve to be treated a certain way? Do you feel like you deserve to have your opinion heard all the time? Do you feel like you deserve to have a break? Or do you feel like you deserve to be weighted on hand and foot while not serving yourself? While not serving the church, I mean. So it's not only prideful to deceive yourself into thinking that you deserve anything good from God because the Bible says, listen, the Romans wrote, nothing new. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right? In other words, you owe God your life because you sinned. But you set yourself up for failure by carrying a sense of self-entitlement. Because if and when you don't get what you feel you're entitled to, you'll just get disappointed and then what? You'll quit. You'll walk away. So I will commit to praying for you that you will not develop a sense of self-entitlement. And if you already have one, put it to death and pray and preach to yourself what John preached. I am not worthy to untie the thong of my master's sandals. I am less than a slave. And please pray for me that I will have the same attitude. By the mercy of God, may we all mature in our thinking. By viewing ourselves as John did. We felt inadequate and unqualified even to bend over and untie the sandals. This is the humility of John. And we would all do well to mimic this level of a humility. But it's even going to get even more amazing here. Not only did John view himself personally as less than a slave, he also confessed that Jesus' ministry would be greater than his. In verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's as if John is saying, all I can do is wash you on the outside. That's it. But he will transform and cleanse you on the inside. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit refers to the regenerative work of salvation. It is not, listen... It is not a reference to an ecstatic post-conversion experience as some of our charismatic friends might claim. Rather, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit that occurs at the moment of salvation. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul said to Titus, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, Not because of works of unrighteousness. We know that one, right? But according to His own mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this regeneration, this renewal of the Spirit, this is the purification of, Of the new covenant. Which is the transformation of the heart. John couldn't do that. I can't do that. Regeneration is the work of God. Apart from any human work, right? And John is saying, listen. That is far more significant. That is infinitely greater than what I'm doing. Now again, think of the the humility that it took to say that. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands of people coming from all over the region to hear him. They were lining up in droves to get dunked. And in fact, they had to ask him, are you the Christ? And even as a sinful man, God gave them the humility to say no. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, for that is far greater. Now, John's statement regarding this work of the Holy Spirit, it would have thrilled repentant Jews. It would have thrilled the educated Jews because they would have been knowledgeable of the Old Testament prophecies, such as Joel 2.28, which says, I pour out my Spirit on all mankind. That's a promise. And maybe a passage you're more familiar with is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27. This is an illustration of the regeneration process. Ezekiel prophesied, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So you see, this is the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit John was preaching about. And that day, the hearts of the believing men would be immersed in the very power of God himself and what john is saying is that this supernatural power distinguished his ministry from the king and john was not able to do what the king was going to do and he made that clear he admitted his limitations and he gave glory to Christ. He humbly confessed that regeneration is something only God can do. Christ was going to come and baptize sinners in the saving power of the Spirit's work. And John was only there to function as a herald to tell people about that. So we see very clearly in verses 7 and 8 how humble John was. First, we saw that his Outer appearance demonstrated his humility, and so did his speech, which was what? What is our speech indicator of? What's in our heart? His dress sent a message that worldliness and ministry do not mix, and he proclaimed that the ministry of Jesus is far more powerful and significant. Later in John three thirty, we read that John testified he must increase, but I must decrease so my time has expired but let me conclude real quick in this two-part message of the opening eight verses of mark you've learned the primary subject the primary subject is the euangelion of christ the good news that's why it's called the gospel according to mark right You've also been shown a good example to follow in the life of John the baptizer. The man with whom the gospel story starts. His calling reminds us that God is faithful. And what he predestines will come to fruition. His ministry teaches us that the gospel must be proclaimed. Not lived out. And it must include a genuine summons to repentance. John's impact teaches us that true preaching demands and produces confession. Secondarily, impacts people numerically. John's consecration teaches us that worldliness and ministry are like oil and water. They don't mix can't have them both. And John's humility teaches us that we are unworthy slaves. And Jesus is greater. May we all conduct ourselves as John the Baptist. Not for our glory. Not for our attention. But for the glory of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us an example in John. Lord, may we conform to this example of humility, of consecration, of verbal ministry. May our calling be flushed out in what we do, because we know we are all we are all called and predestined to be disciple makers. Father, I pray that if if there are any here today who are unsure of their salvation, if the Spirit has convicted them, may they experience the true baptism of the Holy Spirit. May they be changed from the inside and not just on the outside. For that is what John was after. Father, we love you. We thank you for your gracious choice. We thank you for your sovereign goodness in our life. May these words be enough for us to feast upon this week and be encouraged. May it be food to give us nutrition, to fight the good fight and to work for your glory. May we look to you and not to ourselves and say that we we are unworthy to even tie the thongs of the sandals that Jesus wore. May we humble ourselves and confess our sin. May we be committed to service while we are here. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.